features, all clean cut, all smiles, all hands of friendship happily extended, it's not until they've stuck the knife deep inside you that you realize how wrong you were. And it's not until they've cut you open to play hacky sack with your innards that you realize just how wrong they are. There's a museum in Massachusetts you might go visit if you can. And they got them there this exhibit, where they suspend trees upside down and let them grow that way. When first you lay eyes on it, you might be impressed by the technical feat of suspending the thing upside down. You might then move on to amusement over such a surreal sight. But the longer you hang around in the courtyard where the trees hang, the more a sensation of disgust and disquiet will steal over you. The trees want to grow, you see. Even in their inverted position, they still know what they want. So they bend themselves over in crooked arcs, trunks bent like scoliosis-struck spines, reaching madly for that light. Something natural turned unnatural. Something beautiful twisted enough from its true shape to be recognizable, yet wholly alien. There are different ways for the killers of McRae's keep to show off for their peers. Trophies are common. When Timmy Dunwoody was in middle school for the fall, he read a book about Vietnam that described American soldiers making necklaces out of the ears of fallen enemy combatants. He read a second book about the Vietnam War, and it contained the same image. It used to keep him up at night, the thought of that. He wondered about the smell and about the touch of dead flesh against your own neck and chest. Mostly, he wondered about the weight. Was such a necklace heavy? Did the knowledge of what you carried and where you got it from make the empty tissue weigh that much more? Timmy Dunwoody has his own necklace of ears now. It started as a joke. No, it started as a salve. Something to do to scare himself from the potential he knew was inside of him. Surely he would take this one step over the line and would be so horrifying, so wrong, that he would be jolted back to sanity and sense. Failing that, surely an adult would see his transgression and punish him, would reinforce the rules. Instead, his necklace just grew heavier, and now he lies in bed each night, stroking all his assorted ears, 
whispering without words in a language he thinks only the dead might listen to. But that's just one. Some collect jewelry, others take other odds and ends. Tori and Neil try to scalp one of their victims, you know, like in the movies. But they found that their knives were not sharp enough, the flesh around the chosen head not thin enough. So instead they had a little playtime with the corpse. There is one guaranteed way to know that you were A number one. One surefire signifier to all your friends and peers that you were in a rarefied class of combatant. And that was if Kyle made you a weapon. If Kyle made you a weapon, it was because he knew you were going to use it. And if you were going to use a weapon Kyle made you, good God, were people going to die bad. Kyle doesn't talk much. He doesn't much smile either, and the laugh is as rare from him as a water drop in the Sahara Desert. There are in the history of sword forgers and gunsmiths any number of craftsmen who approach the making of an instrument of death like the creation of a work of art, tending to the emerging form with all the loving care a painter attends a canvas. Kyle is not like that. He is as reserved and detached within his work as he is without it. Between assignments, he sits pale and empty, the city moving around him, him not seeming to notice or care. He wasn't always this way. His customers come back to him with broken instruments, hair caught in screws, blood slick on handles. It's not like it takes a lot to kill another person. That's the lesson that was rapidly learned once the children of the Grace Keep began being remade into soldiers and then into killers. All you need is something blunt enough or sharp enough. Failing that, all you need is will. You have to want someone dead more than that person wants to be alive. It requires a certain kind of person. The children of McRae inspire each other to new heights isn't that so special? Isn't that so precious? There's something about Kyle's weapons though that makes the job that much easier. When you held one in your hands, when you held the one that belonged to you, it was like all the nagging voices and concerns that clouded your mind and slowed your motion suddenly thinned and vanished. You felt right. You felt pure. You felt like your arms were not your arms. Your hands were not your hands. They'd been given over, offered up, made a part of something else, something great and grand. His customers describe this feeling to Kyle and he does not react. Why should he? He's heard it over and over before. He already knew it from experience because he wasn't always this way. 
while the after has lasted so long as to be almost all he knows of himself, there was, in fact, a before. Kyle killed the kid when he was barely yet a boy himself. It was something he told himself that he had to do. No choice. None. It's a hard life in juvie, and the only way to survive is to harden yourself past any pain. Kyle had been a sweet kid, really, he had. Shared his desserts at lunchtime, doted over his baby sister, everything he could have ever wanted from a fine young boy. He shoplifted once, just a harmless bit of fun on a rainy day with some friends. The store hadn't even wanted to press charges, not really. They dealt with this kind of thing all the time. But the security guard at the mall was a new hire. Only a month out from being bounced from the police academy, he was so proud of his collar, as he kept calling it, and made such a stink about it that the store decided they ought to see prosecution through, lest they never hear the end of it. It still shouldn't have been that big of a deal. Most kids got community service, a slap on the wrist, some kind of probation. But the judge on the bench was deep in his cups, and something in Kyle's posture and downward expression reminded the judge of the sons who had failed him so often in so many ways, and so he decided to make an example of this young ne'er-do-well. Oh, Kyle turned out to be a prime fucking example, all right. When Kyle killed that kid, it was the first time he heard the voice. For the longest time, he thought he must be crazy. He figures that might still be the case. But now the voice is in the air. Now the voice is the air all around and over and inside. So if he's crazy, then everything else all around and over and inside must be crazy as well. For the first time he knows not how many years, Kyle looks around himself and thinks, home. first weapon he ever made, he carved from a branch ripped from an oak tree in the middle of the yard. There was no other kind of tree anywhere else for miles within the house where the children were kept. Just empty scrubland filled with dirt and grass. Yet somehow, a tree had grown up in the middle of a detention facility, and no one had seen fit to chop it down. Perhaps the earliest wardens were poetic souls, and saw in it a metaphor. The boys climbed it, hung from it, and at night, a few might sneak out after curfew and indulge the pubescent hunger of teenage boys with their hands braced against a thick trunk of oak. Kyle never went near the tree. Instead, orbiting around it the way an animal might circle an area where they think might be a snare. Somehow, he knew what would happen if he went near that tree. He knew what would then be started would have only the one ending. He gave in after the fifth beating in five days from a boy named James Buddy. 
James Buddy allowed no one to call him either Jim or Bud. James Buddy was the kind of kid who grew up too big and mean looking for his own good. Everyone assumed he had a bullying disposition, and so over time, it was this that he developed. Kyle was small, and long hot hours in the sun only accentuated his pale, sickly complexion. He was catnip to James Buddy, who sought out those who wore weakness external, the same as he carried inside. Kyle had survived in the facility for so long by keeping himself to himself, always off the radar. He had his run-ins, he had his problems, but he held out, even after James Buddy decided to make a special project out of him. For months, this went on in full view of the other kids, in full view of the guards and teachers who were supposed to provide some semblance of stability and safety for the boys. But Kyle still held out. He didn't want to be what the voice in his head promised him he already was. He did not even have language yet for what he thought that might be, but he rejected it like a cancerous organ. Until the fifth beating in five days. There was nothing James Buddy wanted that Kyle could give. There was no end point to be worked towards or held out for. When he pissed that night, it came out of him like fire. When he looked into the toilet bowl, he saw streaks of red coursing like bloody tears down the porcelain. And he knew that if he did not act, they would always be this way. And so, he decided. He snuck outside after curfew, keeping to the shadows while two boys who had got outside before him rutted against the oak tree. After they finished, white sap mingling between the bark, Kyle hurried across the yard. He knew the branch he needed. The voice had already told him which one it wanted. He knew where to find a rusty nail that could be pried loose from a floorboard. The voice had already told him where to look. As he worked the nail over the branch all that night, his hand never slipped or hesitated. It was easy. The easiest work he had ever done. The voice already knew what shape needed to be formed. It cooed and crooned in his ear, a lover's guiding whisper. The shiv he fashioned was a small thing, a pretty thing. And it was sharp. My God, Jesus Christ, it was sharp. James Buddy woke that morning to find the pale boy with wide eyes staring down at him. Hi, Jim, Kyle said. Hi, bud. Then he took the small thing, the pretty thing, the sharp thing, and he put it to work. James Buddy died that morning. He died bad. They found Kyle sitting in the oak tree, head to toe covered in the other boy. His bare feet swung easy. I guess I'm in trouble now, Kyle said, speaking as if in a dream. And in a way, he was. A dream you would never wake up from.
The parents of the Mamikrees keep sit across their children at the dinner table and wonder, it wasn't always this way, was it? They know this war effort is necessary. They've been told as much. But they can't help but wonder. They can't help but remember that it wasn't always this. Sonia MacArthur's parents watched every day as she came back from training with fresh cuts and fresh bruises, but always her eyes were bright and her smile happy. She was a part of something, you see. All her life, she told her parents, all her life there had been nothing but survival from one day to the next. No control, no say, no nothing. Just survive. But now, she had a target for this rage. Now, she had avenues of control and revenge that she could utilize to exercise those feelings which she hadn't even realized had been weighing down on her. Then Sonia's instructors instructed her to avoid these nightly returns home. There was a barracks, after all, and would help the cadets develop camaraderie. It was a kind of adventure, wasn't it? You normally didn't get these kind of adventures in the city of the Black Sun. You so rarely had any kind of purpose. Every so often, she would return home for a visit, a check-in, and her parents would note that her cuts had become scars. Her bruises had faded while the skin had toughened, and the brightness in her smile was flagging and false. But she was still their Sonia, their little son, until Kyle made her a weapon. Sonia told him he was going to. She was as excited as a little kid who's just been presented with a brand spanking new toy. The enthusiasm was infectious. For their part, mom and dad were just so happy to see her so unguarded that they never even thought to question that, hey, this was kind of a fucked up thing to be this excited about. It's a big deal? Sonia's mother had asked. Sonia had flashed her the eternal look of every teenager, baffled by a parent's ignorance. Mom, she enthused, it means you're in. It means you've made it. And here again, her parents were too proud of her to question what it was she was in, what exactly she was being made into. They didn't see Sonia for a long time after that. Not for weeks, stretching over into two months. They went by the barracks. They asked the other kids when they returned home for their visits. The other soldiers confirmed that Sonia was still alive and doing well, but there's always a catch in their voice. A hesitation as their eyes flicked away from the desperate parents and never fully returned back. She's different, one confessed. How do you mean? Her parents demanded. What do you mean? What was meant wasn't exactly clear, until the pair more or less broke into the barracks, shoving past the guards and shouting that they would not leave until Sonia was brought before them. Presently, she sauntered out to meet them, her hair in a ponytail and her face thin. My baby, her mother cried. My little son. She didn't seem to know them. She registered no reaction as they pet her, 
and hugged her and kissed her and begged her to come home. In her hand, she held the blade that Kyle had made. It was hers, hers complete. It was as much a part of her as the bones in the hand which held it. She looked at her parents and felt nothing. And the nothing was clear in her expression. My baby, her mother begged. My little son. Her father clutched his chest and fell at her feet. Sonia watched him fall as his ears thudded and throbbed with the sound of his own heart's failure. He thought he heard a strange whispering voice, a voice that surrounded and pierced and emanated from Sonia and the blade she held in her hands. My God, he wheezed as the lights began to dim. My God. Not his. Kyle's. Kyle's God is hungry, but it is generous too. It always has been. Kyle's God doesn't care who you were. If it sees in you what it saw in Kyle, it will wrap you close and never let you go. It whispers love in every drop of blood, promises forever in every soul you steal. Kyle's God has no face, but a thousand names. Sitting at his work, Kyle wonders if he will ever be finished. There are only so many shapes into which a blade or a hammer can be formed. All materials have their limits. His God whispers that no, no of course not. There are as many weapons as there are souls to wield them as many cruelties as there are human minds to imagine. Don't ask if Kyle enjoys what he does. It'd be like asking the bees if they enjoy pollinating flowers, or fish if they enjoy the water. It is what he does. It is what he's made to do. Maybe there was once upon a time, a once upon a time, that could have ended with him doing something else becoming something else. But there's a war going on. Weapons are needed. And it has always been this way. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to another new episode of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by Cinepunks, uh, including Loud Fast Philly, The Mandate, Horror Business, Alpha Flight, uh, all kinds of great, great stuff. Uh, so if you like this show, even if you didn't like this show, uh, please go to the Cinepunks website and I guarantee you'll find something to, that you like to listen to, something you like that's interesting for you to read. 
Uh, it's a great, great website run by great, great people, uh, putting out just fantastic content pretty much every single day. Uh, so if you haven't been to Cinepunks, absolutely do that. It's a, it's great. Uh, all Cinepunks programming, including their show, is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. That's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. It's a really cool online store that lets you kind of build and buy uh, your own clothing. It's really, really cool. I have a bunch of shirts from them myself. Uh, so if you need really, really hip and, and need uh, outfits, make your own with Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. You can sponsor this show and other Cinepunks programming uh, by going to our Patreon and donating money. Please, please give us money. We, we like it. We really like having money. Please rate and review the show if you haven't already. Uh, it's a huge help to get spreading the word. Uh, we appreciate anything you do to let people know about this show uh, and get them, get them listening. Uh, the music for this episode is Winter by E.L. Heath. The Black Sun logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. Uh, so thank you to all of them. You can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. That's at Black Sun Show. And you can follow me on Twitter at The True Brendan F. So that's at Black Sun Show, and that's at The True Brendan F. I look forward to hearing from you. So once again, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Uh, I will see you in July for another new one. And we'll just keep Ryan trucking with the Civil War storyline. Uh, I hope you guys are digging it. I appreciate you know feedback, good or bad. Well, mostly good. I, prefer, I like good feedback. Uh, just being honest here. Uh, <laughs> so I hope you guys like this one. I hope you like the next one. Uh, and uh, yeah, bye.